So I guess every chassid you will speak to will probably give you a different answer. If we have to pick one thing that stands out about the Rebbe's legacy, every chassid will give you a different answer. And that's, that itself tells you something about the Rebbe. There isn't a single subject in the world, not in Torah, in religion, in history, in, in, in current events, there is no subject that the Rebbe didn't illuminate in a unique way. He had an original approach to everything, including singing. So if you ask me, my personal uh, preference or choice, what was the most dramatic, the greatest gift that the Rebbe gave us? What he gave us was the awareness that none of us is a private citizen and that we dare not be a private citizen, that we can't afford to be private citizens. Everyone has to feel and know that, that the welfare of the world, the completion of history, the conclusion of God's vast eternal plan is in our hands. I mean, something as simple as a religious awareness that um, you have to keep kosher. If someone were to ask the Rebbe, I'm not so inspired to keep kosher. What, what can you tell me that will inspire me? The Rebbe's answer would be, you know, couched in different ways or expressed in different ways. The Rebbe's answer would be, your keeping kosher is not a private thing. It's not a private affair. It's not all about you. Keeping kosher means bringing godliness into the world or blocking godliness from the world when you eat non-kosher. Now, if you block godliness from the world, you make everybody a little less godly. If you bring more godliness into the world, you make the world godlier for everybody. So he won't let us, the devil would not allow us to treat any mitzvah as private or personal. There's a great story that a professor who got to know the Rebbe actually told the Rebbe, and he asked the Rebbe if this is a good, a good way to express what the Rebbe was saying. He said there was a guy who was very patriotic, an American. And uh, his, his dream was to visit Washington. Finally, one day he was able to, he went to visit Washington. And he's taking in all the sights and he's just so proud of his country. He's just thrilled. Suddenly he sees this house not far from the Capitol. It just doesn't fit in. It's not American architecture. It looks different. He listens and he hears singing coming from inside and it's not an American song. And the words are not English. He got very upset. He knocks on the door. The guy comes to the door 
and he screams at him and he says, how long have you been living in the United States? The man says, uh, 20 years. So the Patriot says, so you've taken advantage of America's gifts for 20 years and you don't have the decency to sing American songs, to speak English, to build your house like an American house? The man said, excuse me, but this is the Norwegian embassy. <laughs> Our job is to show you how we live in Norway. If I spoke English and sang your songs and built your houses, I would get, I'd be out of a job. So of course the man had to apologize for his... Um... We are all embassies. We are all ambassadors. We are here in this world to show the world how Jews live, how Jews serve God, how Jews do things. If we stop doing that, <laughs> we're, we're out of a job. So should we look Jewish? Yes. Should we sing Jewish songs? Absolutely. Should we build our synagogues like Jewish places? Yes. That's what we're here for. So every Jewish home is an embassy. Every Jew is an ambassador. And we have to impress the world with the beauty, the wisdom, and the power of mitzvahs, of godliness, of goodness. So I got to tell you from a personal experience, you know, I, I did translating the Rebbe's talks. And in those years, this was in the 80s, the Rebbe was very, very emotional about a moment of silence in the public schools. So at every occasion, the Rebbe spoke so passionately about the children who never get to hear about morality. They never stop to think why they're in school, why they were even born. They never hear about God who watches, the eye that sees and the ear that hears, and because of which you should not commit crimes, you should behave yourself because God is watching. And the Rebbe would describe in great detail, with great insight, how if you're not going to obey God, then there isn't going to be any morality. Because you cannot intimidate a bright kid by telling him he's going to go to jail. Because he's bright enough to get around the system. Anyway, <clears throat> the amazing thing was, the Rebbe would speak about it passionately, like for 40 minutes. And then afterwards, it struck me, what is the Rebbe crying about? What is he screaming about? None of his children go to public school. We have our own yeshivas, we have our own educational systems. No Hasidim send their kids to public school. So I can understand that Eber would be concerned, <coughs> you know, have a little empathy and, about those kids in public school. But where is this passion coming from? 
Why is he so passionate about something that is not his problem? But that was modeling exactly what he was telling us. We are not private citizens. We're not here to take care of ourselves. We're not even here to take care of our own people. We're here to change the world. And if the world doesn't get better, then we have to try harder. And how do you make the world better? It's not rocket science. You make the world better by doing better things. So he, the Rebbe produced an entire generation of young people who, who are who are global in their thinking. They, they genuinely feel responsible for the health of the universe, of the planet, and not by saving the whales, but by making the whole world more godly. I think that's awesome, and I don't know of any leader in the past, and we've had great leaders, I don't know of anyone in the past who could, maybe Mordechai in the Megillah. Close. Let me share another thought. The, uh, the story of Yaakov and Esav in the Torah. Yaakov and Esav were brothers, but they uh, went in their separate ways. Anyway, to make a long story short, Esav was, we call the bad guy. Yaakov was the good guy. And... Um, the inner, deeper understanding of their difference is not that Esav was a bad guy in the, tip, in, the, in the conventional sense of the word. There was something very special about him, but he wasn't right. Esav felt that he could bring Moshiach. He was a powerful individual, charismatic, determined, talented, a great warrior, a great hunter, he felt he could bring Mashiach. Yaakov said to him, um, that's not the Mashiach I'm looking for. My Mashiach is going to take a little longer. So I'll go at my pace. You go at your pace if you want to. Now we know from history one man, one person, can change the world. We know that, just from recent history. We know that one man with an intense passion can turn the world upside down. We also know that one man with a very strong constitution can turn the world upside down. I'm talking about Stalin and Hitler. Hitler 
change the world. How did he do it? With passion. <clears throat> you have enough passion, you draw, you draw people to yourself, people are attracted to passion, and you can change the world. Stalin was formidable. And if you're that determined, and if you're that serious, and if you're that cold-blooded, you can change the world. Asav had both. He was strong and he was passionate. He felt he could bring Mashiach. The problem with the leaders who are passionate and strong is that without them, it all falls apart. Like what happened when, when Hitler shot himself? What happened to Nazism? It was finished. It just was over. With Stalin, once Stalin was gone, the demise of communism was inevitable. So it took 30 years, but it was over. The amazing thing, and many, many um, thoughtful people um, made this observation. The Rebbe had no army. He had no huge bank account. He didn't control the media. How in the world did he have so much influence? What was his power? It was not passion and it was not force. Then what was it? How is it possible 26 years after the Rebbe passes away and there is still a Chabad house? And we're sitting here talking about it? How is that possible? Everyone, everyone predicted that without the Rebbe, there would be nothing left. <clears throat> so we have to give the Rebbe credit. In all the years, the Rebbe never used passion to motivate his chassidim. Anybody who ever saw the Rebbe Davim can testify. It was the calmest, it was the most unemotional externally, outwardly. He davened like a child with intense concentration on the words, but no display of passion. Force? There was no force. There was one shliach who wrote to the Rebbe, I'm having a, I'm having a problem with fundraising or something. And the Rebbe said, look, if you can't do it, go home. You're not forced to stay. <clears throat> so how did he do it? He did it by the force of truth. 
He said what's true. He said what's true. And he never allowed anything less than the truth to compete. No hype. No, no shtick. Just the truth. And it took much longer. If he had used his personality or his his brilliance to manipulate, things would have moved faster. But then 26 years ago, it would have been over. And not only is it not over, it's growing. The people that I meet, people I talk to, who never heard of the Rebbe while he was alive, express such sincere regret that they never got to meet him. What is it? What is that charm? The charm is the truth. For example, back in the 60s, the Rebbe said, every Jew wants to be more observant, every Jew wants to do mitzvot, Every Joe wants to be a better Jew. <clears throat> you don't believe me? Go out in the street, stop a person in the street, and say, would you like to put on tefillin? Don't take my word for it. Go out and test my theory. And then every young couple should get a one-way ticket to a city that doesn't invite you, Settle down there for the rest of your life and see if I'm right or wrong. Find out what Jews really are. Why did it work? <laughs> because, because it's true. It's true. Jews do want to be better Jews. So why would it end with the Rebbe's passing away? It's still true. Jews want to be better Jews. <clears throat> Not only that, the world desperately needs the teachings of Judaism, the whole world. Morality has no other source. They've all given up. They've all given up. They are ready to admit that they've lost their bearings. The religions are not producing moral people. There's this one missionary evangelical woman that was sitting on the plane and she tells me that her 14-year-old daughter was arrested for shoplifting and how shocked she is and how embarrassed. Here she is the preacher and the inspire her and her daughter is arrested for shoplifting it wasn't it wasn't childish she stole four hundred dollars worth of she tried uh, so i asked her did you ever tell your daughter that god would be upset if she stole she says you know we don't talk like that 
we don't go with laws. I said, so you never told her that God objects to stealing. She says, no, we taught her to love God. <laughs> she loves God. <laughs> the fact that she's stealing is because you didn't educate her. There's no morality in teaching people to love God. There's no morality in teaching people that God is love. You love your kids, you pamper your kids, you spoil your kids, you indulge your kids, and now you tell them that God is love, so they expect God to pamper them, indulge them. <laughs> Where's the morality? There's, there's no real morality other than the Torah. So the world is desperate to know what Jews know. Otherwise, we're pretty much lost. And uh, you know, we, we're seeing that very vividly today. We don't have a moral compass. You, you, you stop a kid in the street, ask them if they know the Ten Commandments. Not even the movie. <laughs> they never even heard of the movie. All they hear about is violence. All their video games, their electronic games, it's all violence. It's like a guy without a gun in his hands is not even a human being. So we desperately need the morality, the godliness, the awareness that Judaism gives, not just for Jews. So the Rebbe was right. So you ask the guy who runs a Chabad house, now that the Rebbe is not here, why do you still do this? And the answer is, because you have to. The demand is intense. How can you quit? It's like the Torah is new again. The world had forgotten. They thought they had answers. They thought they had alternative religions. They thought they were doing pretty good. All of a sudden they realize they're not doing well at all. And it's time for God to come to Mount Sinai and to tell us right from wrong all over again. And that's what the Rebbe represented. The Torah all over again. Rabbi, what do you think? I agree with every word that you said. So, um, number one, um, can you speak about? Um, I was thinking as you were talking, this notion of, and I know this is a topic that we've discussed personally before. Um, and, and I know that this is a, a topic that I've talked with others about, and I think it all comes together. The idea that we are not somehow like extras on a set, but what we do absolutely matters and how 
kind of that was another, another big part of, of what the Rebbe was teaching us about the importance that what we do matters not only for ourselves and for others, but, but, to, but to God himself. Yes, <clears throat> the word matters <laughs> is, is a little, a little, a little tricky. If you want to say that something is important, does the word matters really convey that? It matters. It's a weak word. It matters. Okay. To whom? For what? How much? How much does it matter? The air quality matters. Animal life matters. Vegetation, trees matter. What does the word matter really mean? It's weak. And it should not be used to describe life. Life is much more than that. Life is sacred. Life is sacred means it is as important to God as it is to us. I think that's what sacred means. So in a real sense, if you kill a human being, you've diminished God. Because every human being is created in God's image. <clears throat> Let's talk about something really futuristic. The Rebbe introduced a new, a new definition of the human being. And of course, it's based on Hasidic philosophy, but the Rebbe made it clear and, and, and obvious. For all of history, all of history, what motivated our behavior? Why did people get up in the morning? Not, not to have coffee, <laughs> not for Folgers. Why did people get up in the morning? Need is the mother of all invention, right? People got up out of need. I don't know, people living in caves woke up their kids in the morning and said, come on, we got to find that dragon and kill it before it kills us. The dinosaur. Uh, the farmer wakes his kid up and says, come on, we've got to get the field plowed. The season is almost over. Got to milk the cow. Why? Well, otherwise we starve and we die. It was pretty clear. We did what we did because we needed to do it. We had to have to. Today, things are not so simple. You tell a toddler that he's got to get his shoes on 
because the bus is coming to pick him up for pre-kindergarten. He's going to miss the bus. You say, you have to get up. You need to get your shoes on. See, that language is starting to grate on people. I need to do this. I have to get on the bus. Why? Why? Well, you see, it's like this. If you don't go to kindergarten and you don't learn your, your ABCs, you're not going to do well in school. If you do, don't do well in school, how are you going to handle high school? And if you don't do well in high school, who's going to accept you into a college program? And if you don't go to college, how are you going to get a job? And if you don't get a job, how are you going to pay your bills and the mortgage and buy a house and a car? And without a house and a car, you're going to live in the streets. You know that's dangerous. You could get killed. <laughs> so, so you hear what we're saying to a kindergarten kid? Get on that bus. You want to die? And the kid is thinking, what, what are you talking about? How am I, I going to die if I don't get on the bus? It is so exciting. It's really exciting. The threat of death no longer motivates us. I remember when Mrs. Reagan went on a campaign telling teenagers to just say no to drugs. Just say no. And the teenagers were waiting for the end of the sentence, like, why? why? Just say no? Why? Well, you know, it can kill you. Yeah. <laughs> What's your point? And we didn't understand that. We couldn't believe that they meant it. So look at what's happening today. We want to know why we have to and must and need. And don't threaten me. The religious grandfather says to his grandchild, you, you got you to go to yeshiva. You got to learn. You got to. The kid says, I, I don't gotta. <laughs> and the grandfather says, yes, you must, you have to. I don't have to. Of course you have to. Why do I have to? What's the answer? Because if you don't, you will be punished after you die and you'll burn in hell. Uh-huh. In other words, you don't have an answer. See, if you have to resort to a threat, you don't have an answer. And uh, don't threaten me. I'm not buying it anymore. Because, you know, if I die, I die. No more threats. Tell me something. Teach me something. Inspire me. Don't threaten me. So here's what we're coming around to. This boy went to yeshiva. An American boy went to yeshiva in France. And what, what I'm going to tell you is the most profound, most beautiful concept I've heard yet.
he arrives in France, goes into the office, and he says to the dean of the yeshiva, in Yiddish, he said, I have to call my mother. Which phone can I use? The dean of the yeshiva said, Ich darf rufen de mame. The boy was shocked. Like, what, what are you, mocking me? Yes, I have to call my mother. I have to call my mother. And suddenly the boy got it. I, I have to call my mother? I have to call my mother? So he said, okay, I, I want to call my mother. Which phone can I use? And the Rosh Hashiva says, I want to call my mother. So what, what do you want from me? <laughs> your mother needs you to call her. That's why you call your mother. How did it become your need? How arrogant is that? <laughs> so it's plagiarism. You're taking your mother's need and claiming it as yours? You don't need to call your mother. Your mother needs you to call her. So here's the phone. Next time, talk straight. It changed this boy's life. And it will change all our lives. We make a big mistake. I don't know how it worked in the past, but it is not working anymore. Anytime a child today hears you must, turns them off, shuts down. I must nothing. Isn't that true? I must. I must nothing. Oh, you're going to die. Fine. Threaten me. A human being does not have needs. Listen to this. It's, it's so stunning and so simple. God created me. He's the creator. I'm the creation. I need? How did I get to need? How did I become needy? I didn't ask to be born. I don't need to be born. This is not my plan. This is not my world. This is not my creation. What do you mean I need? I don't need anything. On the other hand, he created the world. He created the whole world. Wow, he must really need something. So you see how the Rebbe turned everything upside down? God is needy. We are not. When we start to think, I need, even I need to be a tzaddik, or I need to be righteous, or I need to be religious, don't play God. You're not God, you don't need. It's like I think it was Golda Meir said to somebody in the Knesset, 
Oh, don't be humble. You're not that important. <laughs> Even to be humble, who, who asks you to be humble? You're not that important. I need to call my mother. It's, 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 it's absurd. And there's absolutely no virtue if you call your mother because you need to. Where's the virtue in that? You call your mother because she needs you to call. Now you're a good boy. So it turns out, when I do a mitzvah, when I keep kosher, when I keep Shabbos, I put on tefillin, light a Shabbos candle, make a bracha, I'm doing what the creator of the world needs me for. I'm not acting needy. But when I eat and sleep, I'm acting needy. And by the way, I don't need to eat. You can't see on the picture, but I need to stop eating. <laughs> and I can't. I don't need to sleep. I need to stay awake, and I can't. It's not my idea to eat. It's not my idea that I can't go for more than four hours without getting hungry. This is not my idea. I don't even like it. So to say I need to eat? No. I was created with this need. So obviously the creator needs me to eat. The designer designed it this way. It's not my doing, it's not my choice. If I designed myself, I would not need to eat or sleep or breathe. These are all handicaps. Like if I, if I live in a desert, I don't wanna have to drink. If I live in LA, I don't wanna have to breathe. <laughs> So look at what's going on. The Rebbe liberated us. You are not the needy one. Stop acting needy. You're not needy. The creator needs, and his need is real. So we have this choice. We can be needy, which is depressing and sad, or we can celebrate the fact that we are needed. That's it, that's the choice in life today. You go on a rampage, cause you need to let off steam, cause you need to make a point, cause you need to rebel, cause you need, it's not gonna be good. How did you get to be so needy? You're not God. On the other hand, you think, what's the big deal whether I keep kosher or not keep kosher? To God, it's a big deal. This is what he needs from his creation, which is why he created it in the first place. So it's two blessings in one. 
psychologically, I am so liberated. I don't need. See, without it, when my needs get to be a little too heavy, I need to pay bills, I need to deal with people, I need to overcome this. I, and I, it's too much. So I go for therapy. I go for therapy. And I discover that I don't even know how many things I need. <laughs> I have needs I never even heard of. Thank you very much. Now I have to be reborn because my mother never wanted me. <laughs> and I thought I had problems before. So I go to religion. I say, can you get me some relief? I can't carry so many needs. <laughs> and, and religion says, wait, wait, wait. You think you have needs only in this world? <laughs> After you die, oh. <laughs> say, okay, I quit. I quit. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear any of this anymore. Why does it feel so uncomfortable to carry those needs? Not because they're too much, but because they're not true. I don't need. I don't need. So when a 10-year-old today is asked to clean up his room, and he says to his mother, I didn't ask to be born. He's not depressed. He's precocious. He understands what the great philosophers got famous for. To be or not to be. He knows. <laughs> I don't need to be. So I certainly don't need to clean up my room. He's not depressed. The truth is dawning. And the Rebbe taught us this. You need? You shouldn't be thinking that. You should be thinking who needs you. If you think who needs you, you'll never get depressed. But there's a double blessing. I am not needy, that's the first half. Even better news is I am necessary. God needs me. That's why life is sacred. So not only don't I have any needs, but I serve the greatest need of all. And that's why if we were just healthy, not religious, not spiritual, just healthy. If we were just healthy, we would wake up in the morning and say to God, uh, I hope you need me this morning because I'm, I'm unemployed. I, got, I don't have to be here. So if you need something from me, please tell me. And then we hear the good news. He needs 613 things. Okay, I got my plan for life. 
Now I know what I need to do for the rest of my life. And for doing it for him, hey, that's a pleasure. <laughs> like when you're home alone and it's lunchtime, what are you gonna do for lunch? Especially men. You'll look around in the cabinet and in your, in your pantry, you'll find a jar, a can or something, you'll open it, you'll eat it, it's no big deal. In fact, it's a burden. But somebody calls and says, can I come over for lunch? You'll cook up a storm. Because all of a sudden, it's a party. It's so much more enjoyable to do for someone else than to do for ourselves. Because that's how we were created. We were not created needy. We were created needed. One final thought. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the Garden of Eden. Nine hours after they were created, God says, don't eat from that tree. An hour later, they do eat from that tree. And God comes and says, where are you? And Hasidus tells us that God is asking for a progress report. Where are you? You've been alive for 10 hours. How are you doing? Why is God asking? So, oh, because God is very strict. And if you don't behave yourself, he'll smite you. <laughs> Adam said, what, you're going to smite me? <laughs> I'm 10 hours old. Fine. So, so I'll die. I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> God comes and says, where are you? He's telling you that he is urgent. He needs you to do something. How are you doing? You are necessary. You are needed. How are you doing? What progress have you made in that? So the ability to live life with joy comes from this realization. Why should I not be happy? Because I'm not getting what I need? I don't need anything, thank you. You know, it's a well-known fact. People who were never born do not complain. Isn't that true? That is so true. <laughs> no one ever complains, why wasn't I born? Because we don't need to be. We are here because he needs us. And if he's creating us out of his need, then everyone he creates is his need. That's the sanctity of life. To kill a person is to take away from God something he needs. Final thought. Somebody put it this way, and it's just beautiful. It says, you know how old God is? 
Isn't it sad that at his age, he has no grandchildren? Ever think about that? Where are God's grandchildren? I have grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. <laughs> so sad. Why doesn't God have grandchildren? Because my children are his children, not his grandchildren. Which means that every human being who comes into the world is connected to him directly. Not piggybacking on their father or mother or grandparents. So I'm God's child. My children should be his grandchildren. No, they're his children. So God is saying, thank you very much. Those are my children. How can we live without knowing this? How can you blame anyone for misbehaving if you never told them this? If they were raised to feel like they are needy and unfortunately, religion is a culprit. Religion is guilty of this. Religion has for the longest time stressed and made us, made us painfully aware of how needy and how weak and how dependent and how frail we are. And without God, you can't do anything. God will give you what you need because you can't handle it yourself. Well, thank you very much. It's depressing. It's not inspiring at all. And it also doesn't make sense. God creates us with a bunch of problems, but if we're nice to him, he'll help us out with those problems. And then we're going to have to love him for it. That sounds like such an abusive God. Doesn't make sense. We are not needy. Stop it. Better come up with a with a healthier picture of life because this is not working anymore. And God is sitting up there in heaven, needs nothing, unaffected, invulnerable, can't be bothered by anything you do. What are you talking about? What kind of God is that? So we have it backwards on both counts. How did we become needy? And how does the creator of the whole universe need nothing? Now, this corona thing gave us a lot of time to think, to get to know ourselves. No distractions. It was so healthy. And now we look at the lives we had just three months ago, and it's like shocking. What in the world were we doing? What kind of life were we living? It's horrible. Remember when they said you're going to have to stay home? What were people's reaction? 
with my kids, locked in the house with my kids. Oh, this is not going to be pretty. <laughs> the experts were saying couples, husbands and wives are going to be locked in the house together. Domestic violence is going to go through the roof. That's how we were living. That's what we called living. You dreaded being home with your kids. And if you were home with your spouse, there's going to be violence. This is the life we were living. This is so shocking. And we thought that was normal. Did the children know that their parents were horrified by the prospect of having to be home with them? You want to know why kids have issues? Thank God it turned out to be much better. Most families love being together. Pleasantly surprised, they did not expect it. Couples who are on the verge of divorce are suddenly liking each other. Because we don't have this craziness of thinking that running around, hopping on a jet plane, and, and, and shopping, and running, and, and working, and, and sports events, that's life. It's not. That's just busy stuff when you're afraid of life. So now people are asking, so what is true? So what is true? We just realized that we'll be missing everything. We don't know anymore. We don't know up from down, right from wrong. We just don't know. Three months ago, we thought staying home with kids is a horrible punishment from heaven. A decree straight out of hell. So what do we know? We need to teach the world. And the Rebbe prepared us for this. We are not needy. We are needed. Life is suddenly good again. Rabbi, how do we communicate this with, uh, to kids? The fact that they're not needy, but needed. Two messages. One is, don't be so needy. You can say that in many ways, but not when they're needy. <laughs> not when they're screaming about something. That's not a good time to... When you're educating them, not trying to, to do damage control. When you're sitting around the table, you're talking, some subject comes up and somebody says, I need, and you say, you know, needy is not so pleasant. You need too many things, it gets to be a burden and you start to hate yourself. So it's just pointing out a truth, a reality. And then you have to tell them who does need you.
imagine parents saying to their kids, you know, we never, we never needed you. We don't need this. But if you're cute and lovable, we'll keep you. You are destroying that child and you're going to pay for it because it's going to make you miserable. The child would rather be needed than loved. You must convey to your children that they are absolutely essential to your life. Question is how did how did the notion of and and I'm even getting comments right now the the idea that God doesn't can't have any needs where does that come from and 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 what's what goes on with that? It comes from a misunderstanding of what perfect means and what infinite means. Like a person says. You really think God is bothered by whether I eat the kosher sandwich or the non-kosher sandwich? Really? Even I don't care. I can't be bothered with something so petty. How could you insult God by saying that this matters to him? He's infinite. That's where that problem started. And the problem is, infinite doesn't mean too big. Infinite means with no limits. So nothing is too big for him, but nothing is too small for him. So to say he can't be bothered, what do you mean? He's running out of energy? He can only do so much in the day? Like you? <laughs> yeah, you can't be bothered. Because you have limited energy, you got to pick your battles. What are you saying? God has limited energy. He can't be bothered. And then there's the word perfect. Oh, God is perfect. And therefore, he needs nothing. Except that he created the world, so I'm a little puzzled. <laughs> Something doesn't fit. A God who needs nothing does not create a universe. So then they tell you, no, they did, God did it just for you. For me, don't do me no favors. <laughs> I didn't ask for no favors. Uh-uh. No, he wants to help you with your problems. Uh, who gave me those problems? No. It doesn't work. It also doesn't work that my problems are at the center of the universe and God exists to help me with my problems. So God is worshiping me. Something's not making sense here. The Rebbe's picture is the only one that even makes sense. I don't know if you have time, but can you share the story? I've heard you say it before. I don't know if I, I don't. I suspect that that's, that folks on this uh, in this group haven't heard it. 
of the of the of the of the young man. I think it was a young man who you helped with this idea, with this insight. I don't want to give too much away with the story, but a very powerful story. But the the boy, I think a young man who was suicidal, possibly is that. Uh, am I correct with the with the details? That doesn't really tell me which story. <laughs> The one who, well, I don't, I don't want to tell the story, but my recollection is there was a young man who was not in good shape and you shared this idea with him and it, uh, it really made an impact. I've shared this with a lot of people and it makes a very big impact. Mm -hmm. In fact, I shared this with prisoners in the federal penitentiary, people who were in jail for 35 years for some heinous crimes and it reduced them to tears. They had a whole new lease on life. It was like, yes, you're not going to have what you need. You're in jail forever. So you're not going to have what you need. But why are you so needy? Look around. Who needs you? They literally were reduced to tears. Hardened criminals. It's a cute story. It's kind of kind of related to this. Um, Twelve-year-old girl was suddenly convinced that God was angry at her. It's a religious girl in Israel. They tried everything, and she is miserable because God is angry at her. So the father calls me and puts her on the phone. I don't know the I don't know anything about them. Totally cold. So you know, what am I going to say to a twelve-year-old? I said, "God is angry at you." She says, "Yeah." I said, "I'm so jealous." She says, what? I said, you're 12 years old. You can get God angry. How did you become so important? Problem is over. Everyone tried to convince her that God was not angry. She wasn't buying it. If God was angry at us, would that not be the ultimate compliment? First of all, he's angry about something I did. He noticed what I did. He noticed and it matters to him. It matters to him so much that he is angry. I don't know. How did I get to be that important? And it's the same idea. How, how did I get to be his need? He needs me? Wow. I'm not going to question it too much, but I like it. So when we say God got angry, that's not a threat. 
God is responding to something you did? What does that tell you? That you're needy? Boy, you're missing the point. You need to call your mother? Well, your mother needs nothing, right? <laughs> How did we get it so backwards? So I think that we should celebrate the Rebbe's teachings by trusting him. Try this. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself that you don't need anything. You eat because he designed you that way. What are you, you going to do? I was speaking to a girl, a young woman, who was anorexic. Same idea. Nothing helped because she thought eating was disgusting and everybody's trying to tell her, no, 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 it's beautiful, it's beautiful. You have to eat, it's good for you, it's healthy. Blah, blah. <laughs> she started saying, I, I find eating very uncomfortable. I said, yeah, I know. It's the most disgusting thing we could possibly do. So animalistic. It's so grubby, it's so embarrassing, it's so degrading. And she said, whoa, whoa, you're worse than me. I said, it's not worse or it's not better, it's just a fact. I don't know why God does this to us. It's so, it's so humbling. So what are you going to do? Yeah, swallow your pride and eat something. No pun intended. So you swallow your pride and you eat something. Her problem went away. And sometimes when we think people are sick and we argue with them, listen to what they're saying. And don't argue when they're right. When a kid says, I didn't ask to be born, don't argue. Admit that you also didn't ask to be born. <laughs> I didn't ask to go complain to grandma. But grandma didn't ask to be born either. So why are you arguing with a kid who says, I didn't ask to be born? You're going to lose the argument because the kid is right. A girl says eating is disgusting. What are you arguing? She's right. So why do we eat? Because God designed us to keep us humble. So I eat because he wants me to. I sleep because he wants me to. When I get confused and I say, I need to sleep now. I need to eat now. That's not healthy. That's playing God. It's not your need, it's his. See, and this is Judaism. God comes and says, I designed you that you have to eat. Our reaction should be, what do you want me to eat? When do you want me to eat? How do you want me to eat? 
So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and says, don't eat from this tree. Adam didn't say, why not? I like this tree. Why can't I eat from it? No, to Adam it was very clear. I don't want to eat anything at all. But you, you think I must. Okay, so tell me, what do you want me to eat? What don't you want me to eat? It's your plan. God says, I want you to get married. I don't need to get married. So, you want me to get married? Who do you want me to marry? <laughs> Make me a shidduch. <laughs> you want me to get married? You be the shadchan. Introduce me to somebody. When do you want me to get married? How do you want me to get married? It's all up to you. I don't care. So you want me to eat cow, not pork? Fine, I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, I didn't even ask to be born. It's very liberating. You know, I don't care whether I'm male or female. It's all the same to me. Oh, you want me to be male? Fine, I'll be male. It should be, for me, it should be all options on the table, whatever you want. So if he created me to be male, fine, I'll be male. To me, I don't care. I don't care. I wouldn't mind being female. But then again, I wouldn't mind not being anything. So if you need me to be male, then that's what I'll do. You need me to be female? Fine, that's what I'll do. I am not going to get needy about it. And that's real freedom of choice. Real freedom of choice comes to the fact that I, I don't care. This is not my game. This is not my plan. This is not my invention. This is not my creation. So whatever you want. Hineni. <laughs> Hineni means, hey, I'm not employed. So I'm available. And I'd much rather be needed than needy. It's, it's beautiful, it's holy, and it's sane. Come on, what more can you ask? That may just be the secret to our survival. We are like these kids of today. 3,000 years ago, we said to God, I don't need anything. So if there's something you need, tell me. So God, so do I need? Come to Mount Sinai, we'll talk. <laughs> and he told us what he needs. And we said, sure. Whatever you need, we'll do it. Because otherwise, I don't need anything. A God who needs you is a lovable God. A God who needs you 
is a God with a purpose, a creator who knows what he's doing. He was also very smart in choosing the Jewish people. You know, we say this with all, all humility. We are an incredible people. Indestructible, just like he is. So the Rebbe was right. 3,333 years ago, God asked us to be his people. We said yes. That's the last time we heard from him. And 3,333 years later, we are his people. Have we forgotten some of the rules? Yeah, 3,000 years. You know, we have good memory, but you know, this is ridiculous. So are we perfect in the observance of commandments? We're the first ones to admit that we're not. But have we stopped being Jewish? Have we stopped being his people? Never, never. Not even after the Holocaust. We were angry at him, hated him, but we're obsessed with him. Amazing relationship. And here we are, 3,333 years later, and we're trying to figure out how to be better Jews. That's a bigger miracle than splitting the sea. <laughs> what, he split the sea, what, for 12 hours or something? A miracle lasted 12 hours? The miracle of Hanukkah lasted eight days? <laughs> we are a miracle for 3,333 years. The last 2,000 years, impossible. It should not have happened. We should have quit 2,000 years ago. We didn't. That was because of the destruction of the temple. Exiled into Babylon. Should have quit then. We didn't. Then there were the Crusades. Should have quit then. We didn't. Then there was the Inquisition. Should have quit then. Hmm. And there were the pogroms and the ghettos and the expulsions from England, from France, from Italy. Didn't quit then either. Then we had Germany. We're not quitting. We're not quitting. We're amazing, but it's because we realize 
It's not about us. It's not about us. Now you can't destroy me anymore. So now you can't threaten me. What are you going to do? Kill me? <laughs> and it's become universal now. The average kid says, I don't care. You better give me a good reason to do what I should do. Don't threaten me. Makes sense to me. It's an exciting time. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, I've, I've been getting comments of people that are just uh, very, very um, touched and moved by, by your message. And, uh, and I know it's profoundly affected me as well. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insight and inspiration into the Rebbe's revolution. I know there's many different ways that we can look at this, uh, many different ways to talk about the legacy of the Rebbe. But if if, uh, if what you said tonight is true, and I know it is, then perhaps this is the most daring idea yet. The idea that we absolutely matter, not just because God wants to keep us busy or because, you know, we've convinced ourselves that maybe, you know, we, we want to do this or want to do that, but on an absolute level, that there's something that we need to do that really absolutely um, is, is needed. So I want to thank you for giving us inspiration um, as we enter uh, into the week of Gimel Tammuz, the third day of Tammuz. Let us take this to heart and let us recommit ourselves to doing, to not calling our mother because we need to, but realizing that our mother needs us to call her, that we're, we're all needed, we're all necessary. Thank you again. Uh, thank you all for being here this evening. I wish you uh, a Shavuot Tov, a wonderful week, a week filled with inspiration and study and uh, continued action to, to do what is needed from us. Um, at this point, um, I'm going to make available the opportunity to... Rabbi Freeman, are you available for a little bit of Q&A, maybe five minutes or so? Absolutely. Okay, great. I'm going to see if I can... I can get everybody the ability. Can you, somebody uh, try to unmute themselves. Can, can you unmute yourselves? Is that? Yes. yes. Fantastic. Okay, great. Yeah, so go ahead and uh, 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 if you have a question. Uh, uh, Any questions? Please, please go. I, I, could I? I'm just trying to understand. I don't need, but has God needs for me to do? Is that right? Yes. Thank you. I just another have to way think of, now. Another way of saying it: all my needs. I need like a hole in the head. 
You're right, a lachen cup. <laughs> Who needs all these needs? <laughs> is there any reason, what, I mean, is there any reason that we had to go through the pogroms and the Holocaust and the Inquisition and all that? I don't think so. You're going to have to ask God if you want an answer to that one. Because I don't think there was any need for that. I mean, it seems like in the future, you know, it would happen again. Well, I, I don't understand why it happened the first time. Why would it happen again? It's totally unnecessary. We'll be good without being punished. Right. We'll need that. And besides, it wasn't even a punishment. We didn't do anything so horrible to deserve such punishment. So no, it's a total mystery. Thank you, Rabbi. I'm a little confused by one thing I read in the Ramkal in Derachat Shem, which says that God has no lacks, but yet we're, we're told that he has needs. It's very confusing when you read the Ramkal. If you would ask anyone, anyone, God created the world, did he create the world with a purpose or without a purpose? Oh, with a purpose, of course. Of course. So this purpose that he created the world for, is it important to him or not? How can you say he created the world with a purpose, but the purpose is not important? So if it happens, fine. If not, it's also good, because he doesn't care. There's something missing in this picture. And I think the answer is this. When we say God doesn't need, you got to be really careful, because you're basically turning him into an irrelevant nothing. He doesn't need, he doesn't care, he doesn't react, he doesn't get hurt, he doesn't get happy. So, so what is he? That's a dangerous thing to say. You're making God completely irrelevant, and then you demand that I serve him and love him. When we say God needs nothing, we're talking about his existence. There it's true. He doesn't need help for his existence. See, if we don't get food, we're going to die. We'll stop existing. That's what we call a need. He's not going to stop existing. He's not going to get any older. He's not going to get any smarter. He's not going to get any richer. He's not going to get any stronger. He is already perfect. Oh, so that means he needs nothing. When a man and a woman get married, is it because they're not perfect? That's a sad view of marriage. 
he is perfect and she is perfect. He is not going to make her smarter. He's not going to make her richer. He's not going to make her stronger. He's not going to make her older. And she won't do that to him. Their existences are completely independent. I don't need you to be able to exist. And in that sense, I'm perfect. So here's, here's what a man should say to a woman. Please marry me. I can exist without you. Because if I couldn't exist without you, then you really shouldn't marry me. I need therapy, not a wife. So yes, I can exist without you. And I have for 20 years. So please marry me. I can exist without you. But what meaning would that existence have? That's what God is telling us. I am God, the creator of heaven and earth. I don't need you to make me stronger, smarter, bigger, older. No. I am already perfect. But what meaning does perfect have without you? So be mine. So what does he need? He needs someone besides him. So what it says in the Ramchal is that you can't add to his existence. That's true. He doesn't want help with his existence. He wants someone to share his perfection with. Which means he is perfect and humble. Not less perfect. He is needy in the healthiest sense of the word. He needs someone so that he is not the only one. Because that's what he was before he created the world. And that's the beauty of it. If I really need nothing from you, and I just need you. For you, not for me. That's how a marriage should be. I don't need anything from you. I just need you to be in my life. And what will I get from you? That's, that's not even a question. I will have you. So what if I can't have you? Am I then imperfect? Is there something missing in me? No. You're missing. I'm missing you. Not something in me. That is so romantic. God is the ultimate romantic. So here's, here's, since you're a, a learned man, what, 
What do the first words of the Ten Commandments mean? Anoichi Hashem Elikecha. Translated into English, I am God, your God. What is that, poetic, redundant? What, what is he saying? I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. He's introducing himself. Took us out of Egypt 50 days ago. We haven't forgotten yet. So what is he saying? I think the way it should be translated is, Anechi Hashem, I am God. You know, perfect. Without need. Yeah, I am God. Elekecha, but I am yours. I need nothing, but I need you. And that's why I took you out of Egypt. So be mine. And that's why in response, we said, yeah, whatever you want. Whatever you want. It was so romantic. And then we all became from... <laughs> and lost the whole romance. If I don't do this, will I get a big punishment or a little punishment? Can I get away with not doing that? Can, oh, come on, it deteriorated to a contest of wills and the whole beauty of it was lost. We turned God into an angry old man. Somebody put it like this. A guy meets the woman of his dreams and they uh, plan to get married. So he goes and he, he hires the best caterer in the world. He hires the best musicians in the world. He gets the nicest location for a wedding. Unbelievable. And he's running around boasting to everyone he sees. You won't believe the musicians. You're not going to believe the food that we're going to have at this. And the place is just so incredible. It's the top of everything. A week before the wedding, she says, never mind. Don't want to marry you. Is he still boasting about the caterer? Is he still proud of the musicians he's going to hire? No, <laughs> he's got to figure out how to get rid of them. In other words, he doesn't need musicians, he doesn't need uh, caterers, and he doesn't need venues. He needs the marriage. If you're not marrying me, I don't need any of that stuff. This is what God is telling us on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, God says, if you don't need me to be your king, then I'll cancel the whole thing. I don't need mountains and, and stars and the heavens and oceans. And <laughs> It's gorgeous if you marry me, 
If you're not marrying me, I don't need any of that. So Rosh Hashanah is not a threat, a day of judgment. It's so romantic. So here's the punchline. Try this on your friends and see if you can get into a good conversation. God needs us much more than we need him. Make sense? Why do we need him? Because without him, we'll die. So, so what? But without us, he will not die. He'll just continue to suffer, not having us. So he needs us forever. We need him for about 80 years. <laughs> So let's serve him with joy. Thank you for needing me. Thank you for telling me what you need me for. Thank you for telling me how much you appreciate what I do for you. Now, if you'll show me how much you appreciate it, <laughs> that would be good too. That's Mashiach. Mashiach means the world will get to a point where God will be able to display his pleasure, not just promise us that he's enjoying it. <laughs>